0: Well again let me say good morning and welcome and once again congratulations uh, to our graduates. With so much in your life that is new I can think of no better advice than what the prophet Jeremiah said when you stand in the way and you're wondering what direction to go look for the ancient paths. With so much in your life that's new you need some stuff in your life that's ancient and those ancient truths from God's Word, will be what guides you forward wherever life takes you. And you know this, but wherever life takes you, I hope you know you always have a home at Coleman First Baptist Church. And the front row will always be available throughout the rest of your life. It's always here. Hey, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, you need to know if you're turning in your Bible or turning on your Bible and scrolling, you are flipping back a few pages. You are flipping back 3,000 years. Come back with me, 3,000 years of human history, and we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now the first thing, when the preacher says, hey, we're going to look at a text, we're going to look at a document that is 3,000 years old, the first thing I would be wondering, the first thing perhaps many of you are wondering is, how are you going to talk about a scripture that is 3,000 years old, what on earth does that have to do with me? It's a Fair question, and I hope. That within three verses, you'll see that the answer to that question is everything. <laughs> Give me three verses, okay? After one or two, don't check out. Give me three verses. First three verses, you'll, you'll realize the answer to the question, what does this ancient Bible text have to do with me? Everything. Here we go. Are you there? First Samuel chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel, period. Huge line after that. We do not see Samuel again for three chapters. So far, the story—remember about Hannah, the praying—you know—a a woman who wanted to be pregnant, gives birth to Samuel. Samuel goes up. Remember the call from a couple weeks ago? Samuel, Samuel, and he thinks it's Eli. It's been all about Samuel, but the whole point was God was raising up a prophet, and the prophet's word went out throughout all Israel. Now we don't hear from Samuel again for like three chapters, but you need to know the word has gone out—that that word from God through Samuel has gone out. Okay. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Nothing unusual here, ancient enemy of the Israelites. They were always battling territorial disputes. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So far so bad, but what do ancient tribal wars have to do with me? Like, okay, so, so Israel's battling Philistines. Well, I, I, I don't know any Philistines. And if I did, I doubt we'd get in a fight, you know. So what, what, what does this have to do? Okay, so, so there's this sort of ancient tribal warfare. What's that to do with me? Remember, I told you, give me three verses. Here it is. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And there it is. If we're honest, isn't that how it is sometimes? The Lord has not been mentioned so far. The Lord, the people of Israel want nothing to do with the Lord. And suddenly when 4,000 men are defeated, then we start inquiring of the Lord. Then we want to know, hey God, what's up? isn't that how it is sometimes? Isn't that how it is? When, when things are good, it's like, ah, we don't even bring them up. But when there's trouble, when life doesn't go like we thought it should, especially since, like the children of Israel thought, we're God's kids. Right? Why, why is it God is supposedly on our side? Why did I get that diagnosis? Why did I fail that class? Why did this happen? Why did this breakup happen? What's going on? Lord, Why 4,000 people. Why has the Lord defeated us today? Israel has been where a lot of people are. See, this is a 3,000-year-old story, but I think it speaks with a modern voice because Israel it then is where a lot of people are now. They believe in God, but they sort of have Heisman Trophy Christianity. They want God at arm's length. They want God as long as God will come on their terms. See, they want God, and they would never admit it. You would, ne- you would never admit this. But you want God deep down. God is like a a waiter, like a waiter, waitress, you know, a server. They don't sit down at the table with you to have the meal, but they bring you all the good stuff. Now you got to pay the bill, right? And you got to treat them night. You got to leave a good tip in the offering plate, right? But deep down, their role is to serve you. They don't sit there at the table. You pay the bill. You tip them. you got to be super polite. But at the end of the day, it's about my family and my friends and my good time. And you bring all the good things. Thank you very much, and we'll tip you. But when we go home, you don't go home with us. Again, I don't think anybody would ever be so bold as to admit that. But if we're honest, in our weaker moments... Really, we want God as a waiter. Or or maybe a better analogy would be a landlord. A landlord. You know, for all those years we lived in New York City, we had a landlord. This is a great setup. We were tenants of the apartment, and sometimes it was a management company, sometimes it was an actual man or woman, a a landlord or landlady. Man, that was a great setup. Our roles were clearly defined in a contract. It was very legalistic. It was wonderful. We had this thing called a lease, and here was the deal. As long as I did my job, pay my rent on time and don't trash the place, then they were contractually obligated to do their job, which is what? Keep the water running and keep the heat on and keep the place nice and tidy, right? And, and here's the best part. Here's the best part. I went, in fact, we lived at one place for years. I never even met my landlord. Never even met him. Here's the best part. I can go months and never even have to see him until what? Until the second something breaks. That's right. And then I am on the phone immediately. No, I cannot change this light bulb. That's right. I expect you to be all right? The minute something breaks, I just pick up the phone and they're contractually obligated to swoop in and come to my rescue. Now, yes, they had a key to my place. Yes, I would give them a key, but very understa- understand very clearly that key was to be used on my terms. They would come when I needed them. They could come into my home, but if they just used that key to barge into my life whenever they wanted, there'd be big trouble. You see, I want them as a landlord to swoop in and fix my problems with a legalistic contractual setup. I don't want actually a member of the family now. Again, you see where I'm going? I don't think people would be so bold as to say that, but what's really attractive to a lot of people is waiter God, landlord God. What's the problem with all that? Doesn't, uh, Doesn't God bring us good things like a waiter? Yeah, doesn't he bail us out like a landlord? Oh yeah, but mark this carefully. You need more in your life than a spiritual landlord. You need a heavenly Father. He needs to live with you, be a part of your life. Listen to me, especially graduates, but this is for everybody. God needs to be the all-consuming passion of your life. God needs to control the thing. God, to use a car analogy, God needs to be the steering wheel of your car, not the spare tire in the trunk. The spare tire in the trunk just gets brought out when what? When there's a problem, when you need them, when there's an emergency. And then back in the trunk you go to have a controlling influence in your life. Well, the list could go on and on, but I think you see the point. When we get off track like the Israelites did... What will God do? God doesn't want a false relationship like that. And I I hope that if you're you're hearing this and you're convicted by that, I hope you'll take heart. Like, God doesn't want that either. So what he will do sometimes is he will bring calamity into your life like a wake-up call. That's what he's doing here to get the Israelites' attention, to say, I don't want this false relationship. I don't want some sort of legalistic religion divorced from any notion of relationship with me i don't want that i don't want to be your spiritual landlord or your spiritual waiter and so what's he do he brings calamity so really the israelites are actually asking the right question they're doing what they're supposed to do when calamity strikes they say wait a minute everything ultimately it's the sovereignty of god so i've got to ask the question what is the lord doing here that's that's pretty good they come up with the right question but they come up with totally the wrong response And what could we expect when you've got people who want to keep God at arm's length, when you want somebody who says, yeah, we want God, but on our terms, it's not surprising that here's what they say. What's the Lord doing? And suddenly, no hint of repentance, no self-examination. No, here's what they say. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Come on, seriously? No no asking the Lord for mercy. No, hey, do you think God may be trying to get our attention because we don't really have a relationship with him? No, no repentance, no humbling ourselves, just, I know, let's go get God's magic box. That'll, that'll be the thing. Yes, it will save us. We can manipulate God to do us this favor. Now, for those some of you, for some of you, when you hear Ark of the Covenant, When you hear the Ark of the Covenant, some of you, your minds will immediately go to Exodus chapter 25. Others of you, your minds will immediately go to Harrison Ford. (laughs) You can be forgiven. It's all right. Uh, but in, in Exodus 25, God tells Moses, this is what's going to happen. It, it, it's a box a little, more than, uh, f- a little less than four feet long, just over two feet high and wide, which contained the copies of the Ten Commandments and this mercy seat. The box, imagine uh, gold inlaid inside and out. And this mercy seat, these, they, the cherubim, these angelic creatures with their wings, and their wings were in such a way that it formed sort of a, you can imagine, a seat there, sprinkled yearly with the blood of sacrifice. And on that mercy seat, God said, look, this is going to be a symbol. This is gonna be where I will meet with you. This will be a symbol of where my presence is. That's why when it eventually gets moved from Shiloh, and we'll trace some of the story in the coming weeks, but David eventually sets it up in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why in the Holy of Holies, right? The place, the mercy seat where God would symbolically meet with the people. So they figure, hey, let's parade God's box out there and God will be forced to defend his own honor, right? He won't, he won't allow himself to suffer defeat. Now, it's technically... It's technically not wrong to march into battle with the ark. That technically wasn't a sin. They did it in the time of Moses. Uh, in, uh, if you go back to the time of Moses, he would lead the people, and sometimes they were leading through uh, places where they would be attacked. So in, but, but listen to the difference. In Numbers 10, verse 35, for example, it says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. You see the difference? With Moses, the Ark was symbolic of the relationship that he and God's people had with the Lord God. So this was just a symbol. It was, the the whole focus was not on the things of God, it was on God himself. Arise, O Lord. You see how different it is from this. Let's go get the magic box and let it do the fighting. See, you see that? Let it, that it may come among us and save us. No sense of relationship, no sense of connection to God the Father. They have traded faith in the living God For superstition. Dale Ralph Davis calls this rabbit foot theology. You ever seen a rabbit foot? You ever carried around a rabbit foot? I I hope if you have a, 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 everybody has a rabbit foot, it's probably feeling guilty right now. But it's this little talisman, the idea that it's supposed to bring you good luck. I don't know if you've ever had one of these, though the irony always strikes me that the rabbit foot would be a token of good luck. Uh, You know who it wasn't very lucky for? Well. So, So, uh, anyway, the uh, rabbit foot theology, the idea that you have this little talisman and it's the thing that will bring you luck, uh, that's not much different from what you have the Israelites, the way they're treating God. Anyway, God's people should have been very leery about this whole business, especially when they see who's leading this parade. Look at verse four, they go and do it. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli... Oh, Hophni and Phinehas. Remember them? Any of you been here for a few weeks? These guys were uh, the priests. They were uh, sexually immoral. They're embezzling from the offering. The Bible calls them worthless men. You got Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. That should have been a big red flag. Well, who's behind this idea to take the Ark out? And there's Hophni and Phinehas leading the charge. They should have been like, I am not hitching my wagon to this disaster. Right? They should have been very leery, knowing that, that these are the very people God had pronounced judgment. You say, well, maybe they didn't know. Go back to verse 1. The word of Samuel went to all Israel. There's no excuse. Everybody knew. And what was the word of Samuel? If you go back in chapters 1 and 2, part of the word of God was judgment against the house of Eli, specifically Hophni and Phineas. God says, I'm going to bring you down in judgment. Who wants to hitch their wagon to that? They should have been leery. They should have said, "Uh, Hophni and Phinehas are behind this. No way, we're out. Instead, look at verse 5. Instead, they went crazy. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It's a sad day when the trappings of superstition and man-made religion get the people more fired up than God himself they want nothing to do with God they just want the things of God now of course the enemies of God's people take notice and when the Philistines verse 6 heard the noise of the shouting they said what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean that's how Philistines talk And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. Nothing like this has happened before. Now, you might say these Philistines are ridiculous. Why? They think that the ark is God. That's ridiculous. But is it? Because they have idols. So if you have the idol, you have God. So when they see God's furniture come into battle, they say, that's gotta be God. And you say, that's ridiculous. Who would treat the furniture of God like God himself? Israel, that's who. You can say the Philistines uh, uh, maybe in a way could be forgiven because they're just pagans. How could they know any better? Meanwhile, Israel has the whole word of Samuel going out from Dan to Beersheba. All of Israel knows better. And they are treating the ark of God no different than a Philistine. Here you've got the, listen to me, you've got the people of God treating God no different than pagans. The, uh, verse eight, they They say, woe to us. Who can deliver us from, I love this verse. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. I love this. When the Philistines took world religions in college, they got like a C minus, (laughs) like, Close enough to pass, but they like get all the details wrong. For one thing, the Philistines were polytheistic. And so they quite naturally assume that Israel's polytheistic. So they're like, these are the gods of the Israelites. Well, any Israelite or any Philistine who took oral religions, you know, it's one God. On top of that, they got the timeline all wrong. They struck down the Egyptians with the plagues in the wilderness. No, they weren't in the wilderness. They were struck down while in Egypt so they could get to the wilderness. But they get this right. They treat God with more reverence than the children of Israel do. You got people who know better. You got people who got all their theology right. You get that? You got people who got all their Bible doctrine correct. They could tell you it's not God's, it's one God. It's not in the wilderness, it happened in Egypt. And yet the Philistines hear about this and they have the good sense to fear before the Lord. The Israelites treat, just presume upon God's mercy. So they don't presume upon God's kindness. Instead, they say, in effect, man up. Look at verse 9. Take courage. And be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. What we'll just get some fired up. The ark, when, you, these, when the Israelites are trying to manipulate and trying to use God, they're trying to twist God's arm to make him serve their own purposes. That just, what do they call it in sports? That just becomes bulletin board material. You know, somebody says something nasty and they trash talk your team, they just put it in the bulletin board in the locker room. They say, keep talking, because all you're doing is getting us more fired up. That's what happens to the Philistines. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the Ark of God, Almighty God, y'all, the Lord of hosts, the maker of heaven and earth allowed his symbolic Furniture, his presence, watch this. The Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Now you say, why does the narrator name them? There was, what, how many did I say? 30,000 people killed because he's trying to show you. Remember the prophecy? Fulfilled. Hophni and Phinehas died. Well, you can imagine in the Philistines, the way they divided their country, they had five key cities. So they called them the five cities. The five cities of Philistine. You can imagine in each city the next morning the headlines. Can't you imagine them reading their Philistine newspaper? And uh, the headline is, Yahweh himself has been defeated. That's what they probably thought. God himself has been defeated. Why? We captured his idol. And so not knowing, they're assuming that's his idol. That's God himself. Apparently, God couldn't protect himself, the Israelite God. And Yahweh uh, was unable to deliver the goods after all and all the shame, and all the shame that Yahweh allowed to come upon his name in that moment. Isn't that a staggering thought? Let me say that again. The God of the universe allowed that kind of shame. Does that not force us to wrestle with a couple things? Have you thought about that, that Yahweh would rather suffer shame than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him? That Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will wake you up to the sort of holy God he is. So let me pause here. And let me point blank ask you. Can I apply this to your life? Do you need to be awakened to the type of God he truly is? Do you treat him as waiter God? There to bring you the good things. And you're certainly going to say thank you. And you're certainly going to do your part. But deep down, are you treating him like a waiter or like a landlord? Another way to put it, Dale Ralph Davis says, have you gone from God, thou art worthy, or is your life God, thou art useful? Are you relying on rabbit foot theology? You say, what would that look like in 2022? What do you mean, rabbit foot theology? Well, do you have a vibrant living relationship with God, or are you trusting in some religious relic? D- don't do it. It's nothing more than a religious rabbit foot. If you have no relationship with God, don't say, oh, I'm going to be fine. Why? I got, I got church membership. I'm a member of a church over here at First Baptist. I'm a member of that church. Trusting in church membership with no relationship with God. That's rabbit foot theology. Say, well, no, 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 I I was baptized as a kid. You know, when I was in vacation Bible school as a young man, uh, I prayed a little prayer. Uh, You know, I'm going to be fine because I took communion. Taking the Lord's Supper, being baptized, being a member of a church, these are all great things when they're connected to a relationship with God. If you have no vibrant relationship with God, don't trust in these things. They're mere talismans. Superstition if you don't have a relationship with God. I want to say it this way to graduates. Listen to me. God cannot just be sort of inserted into your life every now and then. God is not an add-on, you know? A, A really nice feature to have. It's like when you buy a car, you get the base model, but then you can get some extra features to add on. It's like you have a life, but then if you want some extra features, get God as one of the extra features. No, God is not a nice feature to insert when you need him. God needs to be the all-controlling passion of your life. Now, everybody who's not a graduate, God cannot be inserted into your life as a nice feature or an add-on. He needs to be the all-controlling passion of your life. This goes for all of us. He's not a good luck charm. He's the Lord of glory. Well, to close, the the, the rest of the chapter of Scripture shows the dreadful consequences of what happens when the people of God no longer care about God himself, only about his usefulness. And you'll see it's told in these two scenes. First, both of them are about the news coming back home to Shiloh. Look at verse 12, the news reaching Shiloh. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Uh, if you go back and look at your geography, from the battle line to Shiloh would have been a 22 mile run. So he was almost a marathoner. He came back from the battle and we can tell by his appearance that the news is not good. Either he's been attacked on the way or he's got some sign of mourning. When he arrived, verse 13, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching. I don't know what this means because Eli by now is 98 years old. We already learned he was starting to go blind by now. His eyes cannot see, the Bible tells us. So I don't know if it means he's straining, he's trying to hear, he's trying to listen for any kind of news from the battle. Why? His heart trembled for the ark of God. It says his heart had anxiety. He had vexation over the ark of God. I, apparently, Eli never really wanted to go along with this plan. When he heard, "We're gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're gonna parade the ark out in a battle and be guaranteed the win," suddenly Eli thinks this is not a good idea. But just like Eli's done his whole life, he lets Hophni and Phinehas get away with it, even though he knows it's not a good idea. Well, when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Now, here Eli must have, of course, heard this cry. And here the narrative slows down with exquisite detail. It tells us verse 14. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now this is where, again, just as literature, this is exquisite. But, but good storytellers know you don't, just, you don't just give away the punchline of the story right there at the top of the story. Then you don't have a story. So what, 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 what the writer's doing here, the, narr- the narration slows to a crawl. And you're given, you know, just a few minutes told over all these verses. Sometimes the Bible will take whole years and compress them to one verse. This is the opposite. And the narration slows to a crawl. Look at verse 15. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Yeah, yeah, we know that. You already told us. See, he's slowing it down. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. Like, we, we know that. Why would? Okay. <laughs> I fled from the battle today. You see, he's repeating himself. He's getting around. Why? The narrator's building this tension. What's he building to? And he said, how did it go, my son? Verse 17. He who brought the news answered and said. You're like, oh man, just get to it, right? But he's building the tension. What are we building to? He's building. Israel has fled before the Philistines. Oh no, that's the worst that could happen. No, it gets worse. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Oh no, there's been a great defeat. It's terrible. It gets worse. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Oh no, that's the worst. You see what the storyteller's doing. Building, that's not the punchline, the worst. And the ark of God has been captured. Notice the ascending order. This is, of course, staggering, that the headline wouldn't be, you know, there's a great loss nationally. And certainly, here here, Eli gets the news that your sons are dead. Everyone who's ever been given the news that a loved one is dead, you know everything else fades in the background. You don't hear anything else after that. That becomes the headline. And yet, and yet, Eli, look at verse 18. It wasn't the mention of his sons dying. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, it was too much. Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. We knew his heart was trembling and vexed, perhaps, I think, heart attack by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now, there's, there's tons of symbolism in this, probably too much to go into great detail. Let me just point out, the Bible doesn't often do this, but it points out the girth of Eli. Do you see that? He was old and heavy. Why? The Hebrew word for heavy, kavod, is uh, uh, related to the same word for glory. So the the glory of God is the weightiness of God, right? Here, Eli is uh, described as heavy, uh, perhaps because we're told they were embezzling from the offerings. The offerings back then weren't money, they were food. So there'd be this meat offering, and he would stick his fork in there and take what was devoted to God. He would take the choicest parts and all the fat of the meat. Shouldn't the fat, in the fat supposed to be burned off to holy God? Oh, don't you worry about holy God. We're the priests. Give us that. At one point, the priests even say, if you don't, then we'll take it by force. So embezzling all that rich meat that was belonged to God had been robbed all those years. So you say, where's the glory that is due the Lord? Well, it wouldn't be a stretch to say, where's the glory of God? In some sense, it's not where it should be. It's wrapped around Eli's belly. That's where we see the glory that was due the Lord. More than that, of course, the headline that it wasn't your kids, it was that the ark has been captured. He could have never imagined this. I like to, I, I like to think that I want to read it charitably, that, that somehow Eli knew this was a bad idea, and his heart was really focused on the glory of God. It was too much for Eli either way. And then the camera zooms in on one final scene. And it is one of the most tender and powerful scenes in the entire Old Testament. If you've read it before, as soon as you read it, it'll immediately come back to you. Th- th- this scene has a way of searing itself into your heart and, and, and onto your mind. And I, ca- I can't figure this one out. I can't, I can't get, I don't know. I'll just read it to you and after you read it, you won't, you won't ever be able to unsee it. Verse 19, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, so here you have not only her husband's dead or you know all this other stuff, she's about to give birth, but it's the ark of God that is central. See, this time the narrator starts with that. That's the headline. That the ark was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. I can't figure this one out. Let me just read the rest of the story. And then I'll, at verse 20. And about the time of her death, the women, so, 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 the, the news of the Ark of God so rocks her world that she goes into labor, but it's the kind of painful labor where the kid is gonna live, but the mother dies in childbirth. Now, now they see that she's on the edge of life and death, so her friends coming around her, the women are like, don't be afraid, you've born a son for an ancient Hebrew woman. Not only to have a child, but to have a son. In that patriarchal society, this is the greatest moment of her life. Cheer up. It's going to be okay. It's a new start. But she didn't answer or pay attention. And I read that and I go, why wouldn't she answer and pay attention? Well, obviously because she's dying. No, but that's not it. Because she literally is able to speak clear sentences. But not even this news will cheer her up. Why? Because she's so focused on the glory of God. So verse 21, she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod literally means no glory. Glory, God. You hear kabod, kabod, you hear that? No glory. Glory departed because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. That It's just an incredible scene. I, I really don't know what to make of this. I, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously we're not told in Scripture, but... We're not even given this woman's name. And I can't help but think that that's how it is. You know, um, sometimes we think, oh, with all these nameless, faceless Hebrews in the Old Testament, there was no such thing as a nameless, faceless person to God. Everybody's got this uh, whole life behind them. Like, uh, this is probably important for all of us to remember, but especially those of us who are in ministry. Um, so often we try to put people in categories, don't we? We try to categorize them. What, are you, you know, what, what category, a uh, category politically, or you, know, you categorize you know, your affiliations, or your category, all this stuff. Um, but here's what I've learned over the years. People are not categories. People are long stories. See, if I came up to you and I said, uh, now which of these categories do you fit? You know, I've been baptized, you guys, tell me about your relationship with God, check, check all these boxes. You'd be like, preacher, one thing you need to know about me, I'm a long story. <laughs> you'd be right. And I am too. People are not categories. People are long stories. What's this lady's long story? I have no idea. But you have to imagine, she married a priest. She married uh, Phineas. And, and surely on that wedding day, there was great joy. You're not only marrying a priest, but it's a whole priestly family. The dad, is a priest. And your father-in-law and, and, and your brother-in-law, Huffney, there was great joy. This is great honor. It's great excitement. And who knows? And she lived there growing up in the glass fishbowl of being a priest's wife there in town? How long? How long before she realized her husband Phineas lived a double life? That he was doing his priestly thing, but meanwhile he was also embezzling from all the offerings. He was s- sleeping with all these women. And you know what it's like in these small, close-knit communities? How often did she have to walk through the marketplace and here, well, there goes the wife of Phineas. And we all know about Phineas, don't we? How many stabs in the heart? And yet here she is, pregnant. Was there a new start? Was there a fresh beginning? Uh, Were were things going to turn a corner? Knowing all the while she's under the judgment of God that there's been this pronouncement, that, that judgment will come on this house. But maybe there'd be a new start. I mean, think about all the times people of God have repented and he's done this great act of mercy. And yet, through all this, so she has this child, and she gets the news that not only, the, 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 the sure enough, the judgment's been carried out against Phinehas, but the ark of God has been captured in the midst of all this pain. What a woman. That's all I can say. What an incredible woman in the midst of all this pain. Where's her focus? On the glory of God. The all-controlling passion of her life. What did she care about? The glory of God. What finally broke her? was the, 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 that Somehow the glory had been gone. She says, Ichabod, names this kid Ichabod. I don't know. She was right, you know, and also wrong about this. She was right in what she says. The glory has departed from Israel. But I think she's wrong in her logic. The glory has departed from Israel, she says, because the ark of God's been captured. I think it's the other way around, isn't it? In fact, the ark of God was captured because the glory of God had long departed Shiloh. The people of God had kept God at arm's length for a long time. The children of Israel had rejected God and exchanged him for a waiter, For a landlord, so here's this woman dying in childbirth. Think about it. That kid from day one, the day they get the news, his dad died, his mom dies. Day one, Ichabod grows up as an orphan with the name Ichabod, glory gone. Very hard to forget this. And I don't think God wanted us to forget this story because it comes up over and over throughout Scripture. Wednesday night in prayer meeting, I traced the thread of Ichabod, glory departed, all through Scripture. And as you read your Bibles, look for it. You'll start to see it. Come with me to Psalm 78. And if you look at Psalm 78, you'll see in there the psalmist says, Consider what I did at Shiloh. The people turned their backs on me. They stopped trusting me. So I removed my glory from Shiloh. I let, my, I let myself fall into the enemy's hands. He's talking about 1 Samuel 4. Go forward to Jeremiah chapter 7. And when Jeremiah preaches to the people, he's saying, Hey, hey, Babylon is gonna come and, and tear the temple down. They're gonna take all y'all in exile and nobody would listen to him. Why? Because we're church members. We got the temple of the Lord. God's not gonna let his temple be torn down. They even had a song they sang, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah stands in front of him and he's like, you are treating the temple of the Lord like a lucky rabbit's foot. He, here's what he says in Jeremiah 7. You, you, have, you have no relationship with God but you want to walk under the blessing and protection of God. He says, quote, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? You're going to run around on God, cheat on God, and then come into the house of the Lord and say, yeah, we're good to go? Safe to do these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of thieves to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And here's what he says in Jeremiah seven twelve: Go now. I want you to go somewhere. Go to that place in Shiloh. He sends them to 1 Samuel 4. Go to that place in Shiloh where I first made my dwelling for my name. See what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord. I spoke to you again and again. You didn't listen. I called you. You didn't answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I'll now do to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. And sure enough, he did. C- come with me to M- Mark chapter 11, where Jesus basically says, Ichabod, he goes into the temple and he clears out the temple from pew to balcony. Why? Because you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Go all the way to Revelation chapter 2. He, God tells the church at Ephesus, I know your good works, but you've left your first love. You've got all these ethical deeds, but you have no love relationship. Unless you repent, I will remove your lampstand. Ichabod, come come with me to Europe. Go to Europe right now. And you'll see these beautiful houses of worship that were once filled with the vibrant worship of a holy God that now, if they're even a church at all, many of them aren't, Become museums and other things. But if they're a church at all, I don't care what name is written above the door, it might as well read Ichabod. Glory gone. Come with me to churches in this very country that are only still around with their beautiful building because of a huge endowment. And otherwise, there are parts of the country right now. Otherwise, Ichabod. Come with me to marriages that were once vibrant and filled with love and laughter, and a man and a woman lived for the glory of God, and now over that marriage, Ichabod. Glory gone. Come with me to families, which once came to worship in the house of the Lord together. Now, over that family, Ichabod. Come with me to college dormitories, where once students thrilled to the truth of God, but that was back then. Now I've gotten here at college, and now over that dormitory, Ichabod. Hey, Tom, why are you telling us all this? I'll tell you why. Romans 15, 4 says, the things that were written in former times were written, what, for our instruction. You say, this sounds like a, it sounds like a sermon of warning. Good, that means you've heard me. It is a sermon of warning, because may God forbid God forbid that we'd be a generation or two from somebody walking up and down Highway 31 going, didn't there used to be a church here? Didn't they have, weren't they in revival for a season? And now, Ichabod, perish the thought. Now, Romans 15, four, Paul says, these things were given as a word of warning, right? A word of instruction. So that from the encouragement of the scriptures and because of your endurance, you may have hope. Because Paul knew if you're going to preach like this, when you come to the end, you better give the people some hope. So is there any hope? I mean, how do you prevent Ichabod? If that's the thread that weaves its way through Scripture, how do we cut that thread? We don't want Ichabod written over our families, over our lives, over our church. We don't, God forbid, right? Is there any hope? There is. But you'll have to come back next week as we look, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I mean, that's technically, that's how I wanted to end, but that's a bit of a cliffhanger. So let's do it this way the hope, and there's only one, you could sum it up in lots of ways. I could take you to Isaiah 55, I could take you to Amos, I could take you to Micah 6:8. There, there's a million ways to say it, so I'll just use the most famous, but here's the hope. It's the same hope it's always been, right out of the Old Testament, for example, look at 2 Chronicles 7, 14, it's probably the most famous. Is there hope? Yeah, and here it is. If my people, now here he's talking to the children of Israel, this is not a verse to America, this is a verse to my people. Some of them may be Americans. Some of them may be Bengali. Some may be from South Africa. It doesn't matter, but but they're, they're my people is the point from all over the world. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And don't ever think, by the way, that's like step one, step two, step three. That is one step. You can't do any one of those without doing the others. If you humble yourself and pray and seek God's face, you are turning to God. You will naturally turn from your wicked way. You can't you can't have one from the other. As you turn from wickedness, you're turning toward God. It's a package deal. Humble, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land before it's too late before ichabod is written over anyone any place's life repent humble yourself if you've been treating god as a waiter or a landlord turn to him now the musicians are going to come and brand going to come and lead us in a time of response A word of instruction from First Samuel four, like this. You know, you might ask, "Well, how do we? You know, how do we know?" I mean, you put up a you put up a promise like Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Yeah, you know, if if we humble ourselves, repent, seek God's face, then it won't be glory departed. Uh, it, it, it will be forgiven and heard. That's great. H- how do we know? Here's how I would say we know. If I had to rank them. I think what we had here this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I think this is probably, in terms of glory gone, Ichabod, darkest moments in Israelite history. Let me just rank them. I think it's it's second runner-up. I think what we had today was the third darkest moment in Israelite history. The runner-up, in my opinion, would be the destruction of the temple and the exile to Babylon. Because then you got, I mean, the temple's gone. Is there any hope? I, I mean, is there any hope? So to me, you talk about Ichabod. You talk about moments in history where you had to write Ichabod over this. It would be that that what we see here, the ark captured, glory gone, Ichabod. And then you fast forward to the exile, Babylon, Ichabod. But but, but But the number one, the darkest moment in Israelite history, the one moment when the glory of God seems snuffed out forever. Could it not be? Does it not have to be? The cross of Calvary? See, in that moment, isn't that the moment of ultimate Ichabod glory gone? Isn't it true? Doesn't doesn't John 1.14 say the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his what? Glory. The glory is the one and only son. Doesn't 2 Corinthians say if they had known they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. There, the glory of God on full display was rejected and spat upon and beaten. The glory of God snuffed out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried aloud and gave up the spirit. Glory gone. If there was ever an Ichabod moment in human history, it was there. Here's why I say that's how we know that God will receive us. That's how we know Because if you have ever, listen to me, here's this grace thing you try to get to. Here's this hope thing you try to get to at the end of every sermon. Listen, if you would say, I've done that. I've treated God like a waiter. I've treated God like a landlord. I haven't at all done the things I'm supposed to do. Then that means, I'm the same way. That means we deserve Ichabod. We deserve glory gone. We deserve glory departed. Do you understand? We deserve to have his glory lifted from our life. We don't deserve his blessings. We don't deserve his goodness. We deserve his wrath. We deserve glory gone. We deserve Ichabod. Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, stretched out his arms, and he became Ichabod for you and your salvation. He stood in your place and became the ultimate Ichabod. Glory gone. You say, well, if he took that name, what name are we given? Oh, you're given Emmanuel. God with us. He became Ichabod so that you could forever hear Emmanuel. From Ichabod to Emmanuel. Let 1 Samuel 4 draw, be a warning, but also point you to the ultimate, true, and better. Presentation of God, the true and better glory of God. It's not an ark being paraded around. It's the sinless, spotless Lamb of God dying as Ichabod in our place so that he could be for us Emmanuel. And not for nothing while all this is uh, going on in that dark and terrible moment uh, when the glory of God had been captured. Seriously, come back next week because it turns out while all that was going on, God was very much alive and doing his thing. And it's the same thing on Good Friday. God was very much alive. But that's another uh, sermon for another day. Let's pray. God, grant that we would be encouraged by the good news of the gospel. That when we deserved glory gone, you became for us Ichabod. That you might be forever Emmanuel, God with us. God, forgive us when we've treated you like a waiter or a landlord. We we don't want you to live with us. We just want you to serve us. That's sin. We repent from it. We humble ourselves. We want to turn from that wickedness and serve you. God, grant that, especially to these graduates for the rest of their life. They would never uh, presume upon you, but live a life of flourishing in total submission with you is the all-controlling passion of their life. Grant them that, Lord. Thank you for the families that have raised them. Thank you for a legacy of faith. If anybody here feels far from you, let them know today that you are in all places. You are everywhere. You are right here. You are with us. That today would be a day they get right with you. We ask you to grant this, not because I'm a great prayer, but because you're a great prayer answerer. Grant it because of your mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.